0: so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Our great God and Father, in you is light and no darkness at all. So we ask now that you might shine forth your light before us as we consider your glory that In this dim age, we might behold your glory, that you might light the way, that you might encourage us and give us wisdom and knowledge uh, to lay hold fast uh, to the light of men, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll take out your bulletin as well, we'll be reading Article 19 of the Confession together. In Article 19, we confess this. We believe that by being thus conceived, the person of the Son has been inseparably united and joined together with the human nature in such a way that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in a single person, with each nature retaining its own distinct properties. Thus his divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties, but continues to have those of a creature. It has beginning of days, it is a finite nature, and retains all that belongs to a real body. And even though he by his resurrection, gave it immortality that nonetheless did not change the reality of his human nature, nor for our salvation and resurrection depend also on the reality of his body. But these two natures are so united together in one person that they are not even separated by his death. So then, what he committed to his father when he died was a real human spirit which left his body. But meanwhile, his divine nature remained united with his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave. And his deity never ceased to be in him, just as it was in him when he was a little child. Though for a little, it did not show itself as such. These are the reasons why we confess him to be true God and true man. True God in order to conquer death by his power and true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. That is a mouthful. Okay, if you will turn to your, to your outlines. All of that, as confusing, as philosophical, as complex as it may be, can be summed up quite, um, quite simply as this. Jesus Christ is the one person whose two natures, God and man, retain the qualities distinctive of their natures. Jesus Christ is the one person whose two natures, God and man, retain the qualities distinctive of their natures. And we're going to go ahead and unpack what exactly it is that that means in three points this evening. So number one, his unified being, his unified being. The two natures of the one person, Jesus Christ, are inseparable. Now that's the very simple way to put it. Uh, We can actually add to that list, unconfused, indivisible, inseparable, and unchangeably united. All of those prefixes, unconfused means not confused, indivisible means not divisible, inseparable, we have we have that one, and unchangeable means not changeable. And those terms come from the Chalcedonian Creed. I've included that on the back of your bulletin as a resource for you that you might look over later. Don't worry, we're not going to read it right now. Now, this is actually quite an important issue, and I don't know if we always uh, ascribe to our, our Christology or when we consider the two natures of Christ the importance that we should but it relates, really and truly speaking, to the entire doctrine of our salvation, or, as I like to put it, the economy of our salvation. And It was such an important issue that in the early church, for the first several hundred years of church history, nearly all of the controversies that came up revolved around the doctrine of Christ. You had Apollinarius, who overs- overemphasized the divine nature. You have Nestorius who separated the natures and said that there was no union between them. Eutyches, or Eutychius, depending on how you pronounce his name, who argued for a fusion of the natures such that the human nature was absorbed by the divine nature. And Arius, who said that there was a time when the sun was not, and many more apart from these. All of these dealt with uh, the early church's Christology and various doctrines that were undermining the nature of our salvation and the and the nature of how we understand who Christ is and his work. So, letter A then, as we move to consider this, the person of Jesus Christ is not two persons, but one person with two natures. One person with two natures. Now, to say that he has two persons, if if you were to say that, is to attribute being or isness to both And then you have a duality of being. You have two beings, not one person. But clearly there is only one person, and that person is the man, Jesus, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And to say that he has two natures is to say something characterizes or qualifies and express what being is like, what his personhood, what his being is like. And that's what nature is. So we're doing some philosophy here. Nature is, to to think about what nature is, it's the essential qualities assigned to a being or to a person or to a essence. It's not the same thing as a person. So nature is not being essence or personhood on its own. It characterizes personhood. It characterizes essence. It characterizes being. So the person, the being of the man, Jesus Christ, is two natures, son of God and man flesh. These two natures are inseparable, and at the same time that they are not separable, they are distinguishable insofar as we see Jesus operating and carrying out various, various uh, tasks throughout his life. And we'll consider that more in detail in the second and third point. This brings us then to letter B. The person of Jesus Christ is both, both natures, perfectly and holy. So if he is... One person with two natures, he is both of those natures, perfectly and holy. Now, properly speaking, Jesus is both his natures. He does not possess his natures, he is them. Oftentimes, however, for the sake of uh, thinking about who Jesus is and, and, and how, how these natures characterize his work, we have to speak as though he possesses them. But properly speaking, within theology, he is his natures. He does not possess them. Now this leads us as we think about what it means for Jesus to be both perfectly and holy, his both of his natures equally, always, all the time. In speaking about this, one of the uh, theology has has come up with a term to encompass and 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 explain this doctrine. Now it's a complex term, and we're going to go on to to explain it in a moment. But that term is the communicatio idiomatum. Now that's a very fancy term. It's Latin. And what it means is the communication of properties. That's the translation of this term. Now, what we mean when we're speaking about this communicatio idiomatum, or the communication of properties, is that the attributes of both natures are communicated to the one person, Jesus Christ, perfectly and wholly, without mixture, confusion, or change. So we can predicate or we can assert what is true of each nature, of Jesus' human nature and of his divine nature, to the one person, Jesus Christ. That's the communication of properties, to the one person, Jesus Christ. And yet, at the same time, we cannot predicate or we can't say something that's true of the divine nature uh, and and assert that it's true of the human nature. So do you see the difference there? We can say something that's true of both natures and ascribe it to the person, but we can't intermingle and intermix the attributes from nature across nature. So you can't say that the human nature of Jesus in the incarnation became omniscient or omnipresent. It would be to to, to do that would actually be to obliterate his humanity. But nothing about Jesus is not man and nothing about him is not the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He is wholly both God and man. It's not a fusion. It's not a mixing together if you will like a chemistry. It's not 50-50. He, God, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He's not at one moment operating as the divine son and the next as a man. It's not. It's also not God simply appearing almost like a hologram as a man. Nor is He's shifting, as it were, like mind control from operating in the driver's seat as man and operating in the driver's seat as God. It's not a possession of the mind or of the will. He is both natures, simultaneously, inseparably, indivisibly, and without, uh, if you will, warring with one another. He is unified in all of his operations. So let her see. This means that even though he is both natures, he was moved with singularity of focus to accomplish the task that his father had given to him. One of my favorite scenes in the New Testament, and I often go to it when speaking about the nature of Jesus and when thinking about his work is that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass from me unless I drink it, Your will be done. You know, here we witness the Son of God and the person, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ, praying to the Father and yet freely, as a man, voluntarily uh, concluding to himself, not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. I will go and do it, he says. Even And in this scene, you witness the anguish, the terror that he had knowing the fate that was to come, uh, the, the fate that he would face. And he did this. He was able to do this not because the divine will overpowered the human will, but because he is both. As son, as son of God, he went. As son of man, he went trembling. This really should lead us to marvel at the work of the God-man, you know, to to speak about his struggles according to his humanity. He truly struggled against flesh and blood and sin and death, and it's because he has a unified being that we can justly say, God in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, wept, that he experienced pain, that he experienced loneliness and sorrow and sadness and abandonment, and also that he obeyed perfectly, and he suffered, and he died, and he did it all fully of his own volition as that God-man. Now, properly speaking, God is, the Son of God is, the second person of the Trinity is, impeccable. That is to say, it's not possible for him to sin. And properly speaking, the divine nature of the Son is impassable. Impassable. That means he cannot suffer. But Jesus being both natures, God and man, according to his humanity, the God-man really did struggle with temptation, and he really did suffer, and he really did have to overcome it. And so this means that not one person in the whole history of the world can express the complex longings of the human heart like the God-man can And the reason for that is because nobody else was righteous and perfect and holy altogether as he was. So the longing for vindication, that longing for deliverance, that longing for freedom from a a sinful world, that longing for uh, his enemies to be, for for the, the, the evil of his enemies to be avenged, all of those things he struggled against as a truly righteous man who was offended, who had sinned against, and had longings for true righteousness in a world without sin and for deliverance. That's a marvelous thing and it's only possible because the one man, Jesus Christ, is, has, has two natures or is two natures inseparably united in that one person. Now this is obviously very complex, and there's more we want to say about this. So number two, his changeless being. Both natures of the person of Jesus Christ retained the properties distinctive to them and did not change. Both natures of the person of Jesus Christ retained the properties distinctive to them and did not change. So Jesus' human nature does not become deified, nor does his divine nature become humanified. We see this very clearly, I think, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7-8. to eight. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a certain level of earthiness. You can't get more real, more earthly, more dusty, if you will. More material than what Philippians two seven through eight says. He became. He he really did take the take human form. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form, and he was obedient to the point of death on a cross. Now this also, of course, relates back to that fancy Latin term, the communication of the properties. Jesus, when we speak of Jesus' death, he. Jesus, according to his humanity, didn't know everything that the divinity does. So we find in places like Luke chapter 252 that he grew in wisdom and in stature before and in favor with God and man. And yet, even while speaking this way, we cannot separate the two natures. Even as Jesus grew, even as Jesus was an infant, he remained the divine omniscient son. so we can't separate them. We can't separate this two, these two natures. We don't want to deify one or humanify the other. And yet we also can't confuse them. If Christ's humanity acquires divine attributes, he's no longer truly human, and then he cannot represent us as a true human, and then he cannot atone for our sin as a true human. So if the divine nature is humanified, conversely, if, if, if the human nature is divinified, we lose atonement, we lose federal theology. If the divine nature is humanified, he cannot withstand the wrath of God or pay for others. And that's coming straight from Heidelberg 18. Why must he be true God? So that by the power of his divinity he might bear in his humanity the wrath of God and so earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. It is by the power of his divinity that he is able to, as a federal head, withstand the wrath of God for others and earn life. Letter B. Jesus' human nature was and always remains truly human, and his divine nature was and always remains truly divine. So the human nature is created and finite and has the attributes characteristic of a real human body. Jesus really did, according to his humanity, suffer. He wept. He sweat blood. He cried out that the cup would pass from him. Remember, we cannot predicate or assert aspects of the humanity to the divinity or vice versa. The divine nature is uncreated. It's a without beginning or end of days. It's infinite. It's filling the earth and heaven. So his incarnation does not change this. Even in death, the two natures remained united, and they did not change. And we really want to retain a balance between these two different things, these two ends of the spectrum, the real earthiness, the real humanity of Christ, and yet the real glory and the real majesty of Christ. And that's really important, by the way, that his divine nature remains uncreated without beginning or end of days, infinite and filling the earth and heaven and that the incarnation and his death, even though united and remaining united to his human body, continue to fill the earth. He continues to govern all things even while he was living on earth. Having taken the form of a servant and taken to himself human flesh. Letter C. This means that Jesus' obedience was free and voluntary and that the Son continued to fill the earth and heaven and govern the universe, even while united to the human nature. So first here, Jesus, the God-man, with a true human nature, truly obeyed as a man, and he would freely and, and voluntarily offer up that obedience. The divine mind did not overcome the human will. It did not possess the human will. It was free. It was voluntary. And again, this is really important. The divine nature is infinite. It was not fully contained within the, the, the person of Jesus Christ. And this is that second half of the sentence there. That the Son continued to fill the earth and the heaven and govern the universe even while united, united to the human nature. Uh, and within theology, we have another really complex Latin term for this. It's called the extra Calvinisticum. What that means is that the finite cannot comprehend the infinite or cannot contain the infinite. So Jesus' true human body did not contain the infinite majesty of the glory of the Son. So even when Jesus lay in the grave, even as a child, even as an infant, the person of the Son remained governing uh, all of creation. He did not change when he took to himself true human flesh, he extended the nature of his rule over creation, and he, extended his, and he extended the relation that he has to creation, but he himself, as the son of God, in his relation to the Father and to the Spirit, continued to operate as the Son. He remained the sustainer of the universe. He continued to exercise his divine attributes together with the Father and the Spirit. I think... There are a few things that could be more comforting than this reality because it affirms that even when he, even as it's not just about his advent on earth, because even as he is now seated where in heaven in a true human physical body at the right hand of the Father, the divinity of the son still fills the universe, still governs all things, still fills all things, still rules all things. Now this is also, as a, perhaps an anecdote, this is also very important for our doctrine of the supper and one of the distinctives between Calvinism and Lutherans. If we attribute, if we intermingle the divine attributes and attribute omnipresence to the Son, now when we partake of the supper, what we're partaking of is the flesh and blood of Jesus in, with, and under. Instead we argue that he is spiritually present, mystically present by the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus' body is where? At the right hand of the Father. Number three, what was accomplished by his being? Jesus Christ died for us to conquer sin and death. Perhaps all of this feels very complex at this point. Um, I think inherently Christology is very complex. It's dealing somewhat in metaphysics, Um, I've done my best throughout this to follow the basic outline of the Belgic, which stresses first the unity of his being in the first part, and then makes a distinguishment to ensure that he retains properties and functions appropriate to each nature. And then finally, in this third part, really stresses that because of his work, because of his identity as both uh, God and man, both natures inseparably united in the one person of Jesus Christ, because of all of that work, He died for us, atonement, and conquered sin and death. So, letter A, we speak about Jesus' death according to the nature of his humanity. Now, it's contrary to the nature of the deity of the Son to die, but the person of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, did not die. The man, Jesus Christ, did according to his humanity. We make that distinction... And it's an important distinction to make because we cannot attribute to divinity what is appropriate for humanity, death. Yet at the same time, B, the divine nature remained united to Jesus even in his death. So it may be confusing, but it's also proper to say that on the cross, God in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, died because the two natures are so un- united and inseparable. His divine nature, of course, when we speak this way, did not die, but they are so united, so, so inseparable that we can speak this way. We find examples of of uh, examples of this kind of language all over Scripture. The Lord of glory was crucified. The Lord of glory was crucified in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. God purchased the church. With his own blood, so it's describing blood to God there in Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty-eight, and God laid down His life for us. First John three sixteen, and so it's for this reason that the confession says, because of this union, this inseparable union between the two natures, that the deity never ceased to be with Him. C. Because the two natures are inseparable, sin was truly paid for. And death was truly conquered. So I mentioned that this relates to our doctrine of our our, our doctrine of salvation, our economy of salvation. The inseparable union of the divine uh, nature of the Son with human flesh has everything to do with how we believed we we believe we are saved. And frankly, I I, I don't know a better way to explain this very clearly than the way that the Heidelberg treats this. What kind of mediator should we look for then? One who is truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, he must be true God. We can have no other mediator. No other mediator can be a mediator other than one who is both God and man in one person. Why? Why must he be true God? I mentioned already so that by the power of his divinity he might bear in his humanity the wrath of God against us for sin, and so earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. No other creature can, as a a federal head, drink the cup of God's wrath and earn for them life other than the divine being. And because he is divine, he can do that on that cross, he can bear the wrath of God in infinite measure there. And why must he be true man? Fully man. Because God's justice requires that human nature must pay for its own sin. The God-man Jesus Christ. You know, the creeds regarding Christology often say for us. He came down for us and for our salvation when discussing the incarnation. And it really is such a marvelous thing that the Lord of glory took on flesh and by the power of his divinity conquered sin and death. And that's really what Paul is laying before the Philippian church. He's, he's Obviously he's trying to encourage them to a kind of humility that will characterize their life together, but to do that He takes the most glorious figure that we can possibly think of and he lays his humility before the church as he came down from heaven and took on true human flesh, born in the likeness of of, of men, found in human form as the God-man, as that truly righteous human man. He loved you and he moved with his entire being to pay for your sin and to conquer death. That kind of love and that kind of humility, I think, is a kind of love and humility that we don't quite understand because we don't have access to it as truly righteous, upright, perfect people. But Christ, the God-man, in his perfection, in his righteousness, knows a kind of love for you as a man that goes beyond our comprehension. Beholding the glory of Christ and the beauty of his work and what he accomplished for us, uh, John Owen, at least, argues, goes in tandem with our growth and sanctification. That the more we behold the beauty and the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven to take on a true human flesh, and the complexity and the glory of of his being, of that one person with two natures, that the more we come to comprehend the, the, the brightness of his light, the more we will be sanctified. And I mean, think of anything in considering this tonight, the goal is that we might have a better apprehension of him and of the beauty of his work and the complexity and simultaneously the simplicity of his being. That humble servant, Lord, two natures, one person. My hope is that in some way this might help us along our way, that we might behold his glory and seek to be more like him. Will you pray with me? Our great God and Father, we give you thanks, and we give you praise that in your infinite wisdom, uh, you sent him from heaven to earth, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to walk in our shoes as we walk, to suffer as we suffer, as our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Father, we ask that we might um, be more and more blinded by the light of his glory, and Apprehend him and see him for his goodness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.